entering the Freedom Hut. Is the Trump team laying the groundwork for reopening in May? Dr. Fauci says we could be on track for a more normal summer. 17 million newly unemployed, however. What does this mean for the future of the economy? Plus, Michigan is banning travel between residences. And in Boston, you can get fined for walking the wrong way. That and more coming up. This This is the Buck Sexton Show. Where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America, great. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Well, I think the economy is going to do very well. Now, that's just my feeling. It's a strong feeling. I've had good, proper feelings about a lot of things over the years, and I think we're going to do well. Uh, We're doing very, it looks like we're uh, at the lower end of the curb in terms of death, which is a terrible word, a terrible dark word that we've experienced like nobody's ever seen before in this country. I mean, we have numbers that are terrible, but when you look at the lower levels of 100, lower prediction levels of 100, 120,000 to 220,000, or if we did nothing, up to 2.2 million people, uh, we're looking at a much lower level than uh, the level of, I hope, than the level of 100,000. So we're going to see. We're going to have to, you can never... Look, you can never do anything about the people that lost their loved ones and loved their, lost their friends and, I mean, the great friendships. And I'm not sure a lot of people will ever be the same. But I think our country, from an economic standpoint, will end up being stronger than ever. We have tremendous stimulus. We have tremendous stimulus plans. We have things in the works that are going to really, I think, fire the country. I think that what's going to happen is we're going to have a big bounce rather than a small bounce. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Thank you very much for being here. Coming to you from the pandemic ground zero here in New York City, place where there's now uh, New York State and city have more coronavirus confirmed cases. So we can't include China in that because their numbers are garbage. More confirmed cases than any other country in the world, the state and city of New York. So we have gotten hit harder than, than anybody else. We have uh, over 16,000 deaths from coronavirus, 7,000 of them here in New York. And Italy is the country that has the very tragic designation of the country with the highest death count. America is now number two. And again, it depends on what you think about the Chinese, uh, the Chinese numbers. We all know they're, they're wrong, but how wrong we can't really say at this point in time. So. I wanted to start with the numbers, and so we'll also start with this number, $24 trillion. That's where the debt is, $24 trillion, because we've now added, in a very short period of time, a couple of trillion from where we were, and you have the Fed saying that this is fiscally unsustainable. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be fiscally unsustainable? Uh, It means that we cannot do this no matter how, if we want to have an economy, no matter how scared people are, no matter how terrifying the virus is we have to get the economy going again because we can't just put all the bills we have on the national credit card and for the thousands and thousands of people standing in line at food banks at at giveaways uh, of food across the country to help those who are struggling right now through no fault of their own 
This is the fault of a virus and a decision of government policy that has put people out of work and made it harder and harder for them to get food. Uh, we can't, though, we, we actually can't fund all Americans' uh, activities, basic activities even, by the government just writing checks. That's not really possible. So this then brings us to the, the continued discussion that we're having as a nation about whether we'll be able to reopen or not. Now, there's some complexity here that comes into the discussion right away because the states and the cities are going to have a major say in all of this. And I think, for example, here in New York, it's going to be a long, a long, uh, challenging reopening process. It's going to be very difficult for us here in New York City. Other places, other states are likely to be open sooner. And that makes sense. Not all places have been hit as hard by this. And not all places are likely. And just you think this through. You think of the, the realities of what we know about this disease. Not all places are as likely to ever have a major outbreak or problem. So this is, this is where the discussion has gone now. And it, it's critical. I mean, it's, it's essential. The future of this country is very much still being decided by those who are in leadership positions right now and are determining whether or not the country is going to go back to actually being a country where people can in, uh, conduct business. I'm not no one's really talking right now about major social gatherings and events and all that. We're just saying people need to be able to open stores, go back to work with mitigation measures in place, similar to what we've seen from the CDC. The CDC has told everyone, here's what you need to do if you're an essential employee. So think of it this way. We might go into in May, and that would be really the soonest it is at a national level, an expansion of what an essential employee means. And I do understand those who have problems with that designation, those who have concerns about the government determining, for example, that weed shops in California essential gun stores not essential planned parenthood essential even though they're only doing abortions they're not doing any other health care you know you, you look at the way that politics has already been at at play with those kinds of designations and what that really means i mean for some businesses being being determined not essential means you're probably never going to open again i mean talk about picking winners and losers this is picking winners and losers on a massive scale when I was talking to you, numbers, 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 top of the show, right? We're, we're so focused these days on the numbers, on the models. It's, it's a lot of uh, computation going on. Some of it, the incredible, difficult, uh, the gut-punching, uh, heart-wrenching computations of not just hospitalizations, but also loss of life from the virus. And then the also deeply troubling uh, computation, the, the equally troubling math that we have to do around what's happening with the economy. I told you $24 trillion. Now we're $24 trillion, folks. It'll be $26 trillion before you can blink an eye. We're going to be at $30 trillion real soon. And the problem with this experiment in fiat currency and printing money uh, is that when it, goes, when it goes bad, if it goes bad, when everyone recognizes that, it is, it is too late. You, you cannot unring the bell. People, remember the Tea Party? We, we've seen this. We know this. We've known it for a long time now that we're spending too much money as a nation. And I understand that right now everyone's going to say, well, we have to spend the money. We have to spend the money. Okay, but we better be careful. We should spend the bare minimum that we have to as a nation to get us back on our feet and get everybody up and running again because the, uh, the destruction that will be wrought on the American people if we have a collapse of our currency the destruction that will come from or the, uh, the eradication 
of the financial system that we all rely on, that's incalculable. That's generations of, of misery. That's not just what are we looking like for the next year. Now, I don't think we're going there. I'm not a catastrophist, as you know, ever. A lot of people get people uh, reading their books and listening to them on radio because it's all, uh, it's, it's always, you know, the, the doom. The doom is coming. The doomers, I'm seeing a lot of that now for people online who think that any conversation about whether or not we can start to reopen the country is going to lead to millions and millions of people here dying. Uh, they're, they're going to have to start dealing with the reality that nobody thinks that we can do this forever, which means that everyone understands that we have to start going back to work. It's just a question of when. And 18 months might as well be forever. That's, that's unsustainable with a capital UN. You can't do it. Not possible. J.P. Morgan Chase says that in quarter two, they're expecting a GDP drop of 40%. 40 percent. That is these are numbers we've, we've never seen before. Now, we're all assuming that it's temporary, and I think there is still hope to make it relatively temporary, although this pain will take time to unwind. This pain will not be something that just uh, we can we can get rid of with a wave of the president's pen. And as I've said, there are going to be a lot of places that are slower than even if the federal government says open up. The states are flexing their muscles in ways that I think most Americans didn't even recognize they could do. And I'll get into some of the, the petty tyranny stuff that you're seeing later on in the show. I mean, these are decisions that are being made by, by state officials. They effectively think they can tell you anything. Where, what you, where you can go, who you can see. You know, we, we are all being treated as though we're prisoners in some states. Prisoners that don't have a record, but we're locked up and you can't go anywhere and you can't see people. It's absolutely a matter of, uh, of, of great concern. Those who think that this is just a very temporary thing for all the leftists who are, who are using this, those who believe that, they don't understand the way the left operates very well. They, they are not familiar with what the progressive mindset really is. This is a test run, folks. A test run, perhaps, for what they will do, the lockdown that they'll engage in, Either the next time around, this disease, this disease may very well rebound in the fall. They'll come back and they'll, they'll be even more willing to flex their powers and, and their ability to, to dictate what we can do. Um, and they also may use this for climate change. They may use this for a, quote, gun violence emergency. States now can just a state now has been able to many states have been able to say we we're declaring a, a scary situation here, an emergency, you will do exactly what we say. Economically, day-to-day -day life, you no longer have any personal freedoms. You will do what we tell you to do. You could claim that that's warranted, although one of the big debates that's, that's also underway, not just the timing of when we reopen, but we're, all, we're told that lockdowns work. We're bending the curve because of lockdowns. Is it the lockdown or is it because of human behavior? Meaning individuals taking greater precautions for themselves but could those could those precautions also work? I don't have an answer. I am asking the question. Could those precautions also work if people were still able to engage in more commerce, more business and keep the economy going? I'd like to know why the answer to that is no. Countries in northern Europe have been much more lax. Sweden is, is uh, particularly so than and then this includes the Netherlands and Denmark. Now, they've had cases and they've got people dying and it's bad there, too. But they have not had the economic lockdown that you've seen in Spain and in Italy. And Spain and Italy have been the worst hit countries in Europe so far. 
so what, what is the what is the evidence that not not that there is a change in behavior and that that was necessary and good, of course, any any disease outbreak that people found out about, they would want to take precautions. They'd want to you know, l- limit their exposure to crowds, make sure they wash their hands, all of those things, all those mitigation measures. It's effectively like that's like flu season on steroids mitigation is what is what we're really looking for with all of that and protecting vulnerable populations in Spain. What this has done, uh, I saw a statistic that 10 percent of the nursing home community in Madrid has died from this. Perhaps instead of sending everybody home from school and declaring an across the board shutdown, we should have understood that protecting vulnerable populations, really the 65 and over age age bracket and anybody with serious pre-existing health conditions that should have been the first step and there's a lot of look there's a lot of data that supports that so they can tell us lockdown across the board is is the is the move but lockdown across the board would save a lot of lives from a lot of things what's the trade-off here we need to be able to have that conversation about trade-offs a lot of you in states where you have far fewer cases and far less of a likelihood of there being a major outbreak of this disease you're not seeing uh, thousands of people dying from this, and you and you are very unlikely to in that state. Depends on which state we're talking about, but you are seeing thousands of people, millions of people actually, out of work. You're seeing millions of people who are deeply uh, anxious and afraid about how they're going to pay their bills, what's going to happen to their business, what's going to happen to the economy. Even if they have a job right now, will they have a job in a month, in three months? Think of all the layoffs that are coming, the corporate balance sheets that aren't going to be sustainable. People are going to get fired. There's going to be economic destruction. There's going to be a it's going to rip through like a wildfire. And it's going to be very, very tough for a lot of folks out there. You know, that's that's happening right now and it's going to keep happening for a while. We need to have these conversations as a society, the people that have been all too quick to shout down everybody as uh, as effectively a mass murderer for wanting life to continue for most of us while taking sane measures to protect us from uh, from the un unmitigated spread of the virus. They're doing a disservice to everybody because even if they're right about the lockdown, and I think that's a big if remember, it's not lockdown or nothing. It's it's you can consider it quasi lockdown or state to state lockdown instead of uh, the, the blanket policy that we've had. Even if they're right, we should still be able to discuss why they're right and be convinced about that, because otherwise you have a lack of trust in the very people that are making these kinds of decisions at the highest level that affect all of us. So I I think we all need to prepare for some very difficult weeks ahead, not just I mean, first and foremost, of course, the loss of life is the most uh, that's the most upsetting thing that we're going to see, period. But we're also going to see this discussion about opening the country become very political and vicious. We should all be on the same team here, which is protecting life while protecting the country and allowing life in the general sense to continue on as soon as possible. But there are a lot of folks out there who seem to think that there's only one thing that we focus on and we'll keep doing that and doing it and doing it and nothing else matters. And if you challenge that, you're a bad person. And oh, by the way, it just so happens that the shutdown of the economy, the entire shutdown of the economy, the longer it extends, the more difficult, the more difficult it will be for Donald Trump to recover economically, uh, help the country recover economically, and therefore it hurts him for the election. I wish they were not thinking about this, but they absolutely are. 
They absolutely are. And if you listen to what they've been saying for years about the president, it would be strange, given their rhetoric, if they weren't viewing this as not just an opportunity to get rid of Trump, but as really a sacred duty to do everything they can to make sure that Donald Trump does not get four more years in office. That's where we are, folks. So we'll work through all of this today and, and then some, as we always do. Uh, let's talk a bit about some of the steps that need to be in place in the weeks ahead. Like, for example, what is what does testing do and how does that factor into the economy? You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. President, how can the administration discuss the possibility of reopening the country when the administration does not have an adequate nationwide testing system for this virus? Don't you need a nationwide testing no. system for the virus before you reopen? No, the we country? have a great testing system. We have the best right now, the best testing system in the world. But there are certain People sections right now. Right? There are certain sections in the country that are in phenomenal shape already. Other sections are coming online. Other sections are going down. And we, in addition to that, are giving out millions of tests. And every day we're doing it uh, exponentially. We're picking up. And what we'll be doing in the very near future is going to certain areas of our country and do massive testing. Uh, it's not necessary, but it would be a good thing to have. Don't you need that, though, Mr. President, to make sure people are safe going back to work? You don't want to send people back to the workplace. We want to have it, and we're going to see if we have it. Do you need it? No. Is it a nice thing to do? Yes. Uh, we're talking about 325 million people, uh, and that's not going to happen, as you can imagine. And no, it would never happen with anyone else either. Other countries do it, but they do it in a limited form. We'll probably be the leader of the pack. What is realistic? That's a case. Uh, that's a question we have to ask about testing. It's a question that we have to consider as we're thinking about sending people back into work. We have two things here. Ident tests for identifying the virus and the serological testing that is needed to see if you have antibodies for it. Other than a therapeutic that is a a silver bullet against this disease, which that is my my hope and prayer every day is that that will come through. The next best thing we could really find out would be through serological testing that there has been a lot of exposure without severe without severe cases and that we have perhaps hundreds of thousands, perhaps even millions. We don't know of our fellow Americans who are already effectively immune to this. So the testing matters, but. The administration's on it. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Within a period of a week or so, we're going to have a rather large number of tests that are available. One of the things that you mentioned that's important because other countries have gotten burned by this. These antibody tests are tests that we do on other diseases, but they need to be validated. You need to make sure that they're consistent and that they're accurate. And that's what we're doing now, both with the NIH and with the FDA, is validating them. As soon as they get validated, they'll be out there for people to use. And so, Dr. Fauci, does that mean, what does that mean for us? Does that mean that we are shifting away from an emphasis in testing for coronavirus to antibody testing to see who has had it and recovered? No, not at all. I mean, th those things are done in parallel. One does not uh, essentially rule out the other. We still rely appropriately and heavily on the test to show that someone is in fact infected. Whereas the antibody test says that you were infected and if you're feeling well, you very likely recovered. So the, that's the, the two part of the testing uh, regimen that we're gonna be seeing rolled out here. We already have a lot of testing for the virus. We're gonna have the serology tests out soon. 
and that will give us more data, more information. As we have that information, we can make more distinctions. We can make uh, the decision to start letting people go back to work. And also just to, to lower the collective temperature a little bit here from a situation where everyone seems to be, we're being told all the time that this virus is, is just you know, out of control. It's rampaging through and, and the, I should say that's the sense you get from the media coverage. There's, there's a sensationalism to a lot of it when the, the reality is that this is a virus that we are seeing the worst of right now. And the death toll is expected to be considerably less than what was even expected a few weeks ago. I mean, uh, less by a factor of three or four, which is substantial. And we are just hoping to get more information about the therapeutics. I, I, you'll notice I don't talk about vaccines very much because... We need to beat this thing before a vaccine could even be available. I do wonder why we don't hear more about human challenge trials, uh, which I, I don't know that much about this. I've just seen it written about a little bit here and there. But it's essentially where people decide that they're going to be they would they would sign up to be human guinea pigs in a sense. And now we're talking about guinea pigs again, uh, human guinea pigs where they would be uh, injected with the forget about control trials and all the other they they would take the the vaccine and, and the risks, the attendant risk that that vaccine could not only not protect them, but could give them a very uh, bad and, and even possibly elevated form of COVID-19. Now, they may not want to do that because that human that human trial could also result in exposure of that vi You know, that virus could then be even worse. I, I understand. But we're going to get to some pretty extreme situations here, I think, where everyone's going to realize that if you if we want to go back to total normalcy, where we don't have to think about this anymore. We do need a vaccine and waiting 18 months for that feels like an eternity right now. So there might be some other way. Uh, there might be some way that they find right now. The, the, the standard is 18 months. There's got to be a way to make that faster. There has to be. And perhaps it's individuals who are willing to be uh, even more you know, heroic than they otherwise would by being a part of the trials in the general clinical sense that takes a long time. But this is what we're heading for. I mean, this is the the single most important effort of the scientific community. And it's the one thing that could make everyone's day a whole lot, a whole lot better. Uh, and that's putting it mildly. So we'll see if that ends up being a, 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 an approach that they take here. But then, you know, Fauci keeps saying this. And, and look, I've been telling you that with doctors, they they will always understandably they're coming from the perspective of trying to just they look at this through. What do we do? to have the absolute bare minimum risk and to try to have a maximum upside for your health all the time. And so the doctor, uh, Dr. Fauci here is telling everybody that, well, when they're, when they're asking him about when is this going to be appropriate to, when is it going to be appropriate to start rolling back some of the mitigation measures? He says this play 16. The virus kind of decides whether or not it's going to be appropriate to open or not. What we're seeing right now are some favorable signs. It's looking like that in many cases, particularly in New York, we're starting to see a flattening and a turning around. We would want to see, I would want to see a clear indication that you are very, very clearly and strongly going in the right direction. Because the one thing you don't want to do is you don't want to get out there prematurely and then wind up your back back in the same situation. So obviously we're looking for the kinds of things that would indicate that we can go forward in a gradual way to essentially reopen the country to a more normal way. But that would really depend upon a number of things that we really, really follow every day. 
the virus decides, he says, I, I get what he means by that. But ultimately, no, we, we are going to have to decide. Uh, we, the American people, will really are our leadership. But in, increasingly, I think the leadership is going to find out that we're not all in the mindset to just do exactly what they tell us without questioning anything, without without wondering what's really what's really going on here, um, how how well they have led us so far and whether or not the, the costs that they have imposed on all of us have been entirely necessary. And we've got Governor Cuomo, for example, who's getting a lot of attention for these uh, press conferences that he's had. Keep in mind, Cuomo was completely unprepared for this and completely underplayed it until it was obvious to everybody what a big problem this was. So while on the one hand, the media is, I, I think, going out of their way to lionize him. And I've said his press conferences have been good, and I've been willing to say that. He's not, he has not been taking cheap shots at Trump. He hasn't been doing that kind of stuff. So credit where it's due, but also blame where it's due. He was slow on this. He did not get ahead of the problem at all. And even if you compare it to the outcome that another Democrat in another big blue state, California, Governor Newsom, uh, Governor, Governor Newsom uh, not to be confused with Gavin or Newsom. Uh, he's had a better he's had a better outcome than Cuomo has. But we keep hearing things like this uh, where we get these comparisons of, of the death toll. Play clip five. I couldn't even contemplate where we are now. And to put all of this in perspective, I lived through 9-11. 9-11 was supposed to be the darkest day in New York for a generation. Uh, we've done everything we can since 9-11 to make sure 9-11 didn't happen again. We lose 2,753 lives on 9-11. We've lost over 7,000 lives to this crisis. That is so shocking and painful and breathtaking. I can't, I don't even have the words for it. 9-11 was so devastating, so tragic. And then... In many ways, uh, we, we lose so many more New Yorkers to this, this silent killer. There was no explosion, uh, but it was a silent explosion that just ripples through society with the same randomness, the same evil that we saw on 9-11. What do we do? We move forward and we do the work that we need to do. Now, see, I disagree with his last part there. Obviously, the loss of life is horrific, and it is a, an unimaginable number of people that are dying from this, and no one ever expected it, and it's terrible. That's all true. But that, that it's equally evil? No, I mean, a, a virus is effectively a natural disaster. Now, there's the, the problem with China suppressing this, and there is real culpability there, but this, this is much more like a, a massive earthquake than it is... To call this evil um, and, and to compare it to 9-11 that way, I, I find a little bit of a uh, I, I think that's misaligned. 9-11 was other human beings trying to kill as many of us as possible. They would have killed a whole lot more if they could have. They wanted to detonate a nuclear uh, a dirty bomb if they could get one in New York City. They would have used biological weapons if they had them. Uh, they, they were actively trying to eradicate all of us. That's evil. Um, a virus is a, is a tragedy. But I, I do think it's a it's just a strained comparison, really. And to look at the death toll. Yes. I mean, the more people have died from this than died in 9-11. That is true. Um, more people die from the flu in, in a month in this country regularly than die in 9-11. So it's disease. It's not 
a terrorist attack. It's not the same thing. And I, I think that we we lose some of our, our context for dealing with this when we start to think of this and as though it's these are all similar. I think we need to be precise in how we line these things up. It's not the same as a terrorist attack and it doesn't it has very different impacts on society and you could argue that it'll have even more profound and maybe even some more damaging impacts on society over the long run that's and clearly a, a much higher body count but uh 9-11 it was not and you know I, I get a little bit uh i get a little bit fed up with this where 9-11 is referred to as uh, and this was happening for quite a while afterwards uh, as though it were a natural disaster well, no, 9-11 wasn't a natural disaster. It was human evil. It was an attack on us. And this circumstance is a, a natural disaster that we are working our way through uh, as, as a country and, a, and as a people. But uh, th there, we do need to keep the proper context for these conversations, these discussions. This is a public health issue. Uh, there's not there's not a virus that is, is planning to you know, blow up a whole bunch of planes over the Atlantic. The financial and person and uh, in human damage from the virus is substantially more than what we saw from than we've ever seen from any terrorist attack. But if we're thinking about how we we handle this, how we deal with this, uh, th there's there's a very clear separation, I think, between how you uh, how you rally to defeat evil from other human beings and how you rally together to deal with what is a a natural disaster which is what we're going through right now uh and the president's talking about how we really do need to think of this as as all all for one one for all well the three musketeers situation it's actually a great book one of the first novels i remember reading as a kid that i really loved uh play clip two Earlier today, I spoke with hundreds of mental health leaders and advocates from around the country to discuss the vital work and the vital work they're doing. We had the top doctors in the country, some international doctors. Mental health, big factor. Not only has the virus inflicted immense physical suffering on many people, but also mental and emotional suffering as well. Even though we're staying physically apart, no American is alone. And we're all in this together, but the mental health doctors and experts, uh, it's a very great call. It was a very interesting call. So this is another part of this that we will not understand for some time, but we can know right now it's going to be really bad. The mental health toll that this will take on people, which also does have a physical health toll, as I was explaining to you yesterday, is going to be unlike anything else we've seen in this country, certainly since the Great Depression, uh, people are going to start freaking out. And you know, it's one thing to see some of these celebrities who are in their mansions in Malibu who are doing a Skype call to some media outlet or something, and they're like, stay inside, peasant. It's hard here, too. Yeah, uh, we're not worried about people that have millions of dollars in the bank, a beautiful view, a large home, a yard to go into. Uh, we're concerned about people that are now in very close quarters, don't know how they're going to pay their bills, often have a lot of people living together under one roof, no outlet for them, really, especially if they're in an area where there's pretty high population density, no way to, to feel like they're escaping, escaping all of that. So they've got that economic pressure. And also, you have to remember that for a lot of people that are in that close quarters living situation now because of the lockdown, there's always that concern about what happens if one person gets infected? Now what are you going to do? 
especially if you have vulnerable, particularly vulnerable people in the home. I, one notable thing here is that this, this disease is very, very deadly for people who are in the older age cohort. Um, and, and it is not deadly at all. I shouldn't say not deadly at all. It seems to be a very low risk for uh, children and teenagers, which is not true of the flu. I mean, if a, a, my understanding is that if, a, if an infant gets the flu or if a very young child gets the flu, it can be, it can be deadly. It's very, uh, very high risk. So we're still finding out a lot about this disease, but in a close quarters situation in a home where you have a lot of people who are all together, you can imagine the amount of stress that's being piled up right now. And that, that cycle, this is also why being able to reach out to people, having a sense of, of community, even a virtual community, which is really what we do here on the show, whether you're listening on radio or watching on the Pluto stream or any of the other things that, you know, we do, I'll, I'll probably try to do a Tallulah Facebook. Tallulah is the French bulldog. For those who don't know that my parents, French bulldog that I am, uh, I am dog sitting for the foreseeable future. Uh, we try, and also the Malta History Podcast. These are all ways of communicating and connecting with you and with each other while we're on this lockdown situation. But we, we really are going to get through this. And, and I know everyone says that. And sometimes maybe it feels a little bit like, ah, uh, is that just happy talk? You know, the president's been trying to keep us all calm. Is that just more happy talk? But no, I, I believe that we'll be able to have a conversation in May about how things are getting more open. And by June... We're going to feel like we have this pretty well in hand. That doesn't mean it's gone. That doesn't mean we've beaten it. But uh, we're going to be living with this thing instead of having COVID-19 dictate how we live to us, which will be a very different. That's going to be a very different feeling. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Well, I think bottom line is there's no reason that they couldn't have passed Mitch McConnell's bill. It would help small businesses. It would help workers. If they have something else they want to do, go ahead and pass that when you get your support and when you get the ideas to do that. But we need to get this program done. You've got small businesses. They typically don't have 45 days worth of reserves there. They've got people who have been loyal and worked for them that they want to keep and they can only do it with this program. And so now not the time to be playing games. Now's time to get money in the hands of those that want to keep employing people, want to keep their businesses open. And while, you know, you've got members of Congress fighting over this, there is no time to waste if you have a small business. They need the money now. Who's playing games? Wait, you mean that the Democrats who care so much about the working class, care so much about the struggling people of America, they're playing games at this point in time when the country's in both a health and economic crisis? Huh. That's, that seems so on brand for Democrats, considering this is the second time now that they've done this. The speed of the funding matters. We do not have time to waste. People need this money now. They're making decisions for their small businesses. They're making decisions that affect their lives, their families, right now. And delaying this so that Democrats can... Uh, once again, hold the small businesses of America and the millions and millions of people who rely on them hostage is grotesque. But the Democratic Party is they are who they are. I mean, there's no principle that they adhere to that would stop them from doing this. It is really just a it's a conglomerate. It's a, a uh, disparate group of interests that come together for the purpose of one thing and one thing only enlarging their power and the role of the state and telling you what to do. That is really the the 
underlying definition of the Democratic Party and the American left. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. My colleagues must not treat working Americans as political hostages. This does not have to be, nor should it be, contentious. We don't have to divide along the usual lines so soon after we came together for the country. To my Democratic colleagues, please, please, do not block emergency aid you do not even oppose just because you want something more. Do not block emergency aid you do not oppose just because you want something more. Democrats doing this for a second time. Pelosi already already pulled this nonsense before. And I think she was a little bit uh, surprised because she's so used to the media carrying the water for her and she's never held accountable for any of her disgraceful conduct, any of her lies, any of the things that she does. They always say it's Republicans' fault. And you, you had that brilliant, brilliant lesson in propaganda from CNN where it went from Democrats block bill to get money to small business owners to bill stalls due to Democrat and Republican inability to reach a deal or what, however it was that they just yeah, this is this is what you expect. Right. People who run these news organizations, they they're pandering to their audiences and the lib audience, especially the CNN lib audience, they've been thinking for a long time that they're they're seeing things as they as they are. The news that they like, that they read, they don't view it as as supporting their biases, they think that's objective truth. And so that's why when you challenge it, when you point out that fraud and Cooper and Lemon and all these different people over there are, are frauds, that they're not objective journalists, their audience will fight you on that because they like that thought. They like that feeling of, no, I'm sophisticated. I watch CNN. You know, it's, it's a personal branding experience for them. It has nothing to do with the reality of CNN now as the propaganda arm of the DNC and Jeff Zucker's little fiefdom for his feud with Donald Trump. And you know, the, some of the, the media outlets out there that, that you've uh, probably come to know as, well, you know, left wing progressive uh, organizations, they're really they're they're starting to struggle. And it's interesting to see this Vox.com, which was I used to refer to as beta male central, which I think is a, an accurate description of it. I mean, the moment that you see the kind of people who write for them and who work there and they're just always they, they really do. Uh, it feels like they, they got the cast of male and female cast of the HBO show girls and made them a bunch of journalists. That's what Vox is. Uh, Ezra Klein is the founder, who's a, a very uh, smarmy and highly overrated, uh, quote, public intellectual who's wrong on stuff, laughably wrong on things all the time. But he he looks like a wonk. And so they think that he is a wonk. That's the, that's really all that it takes on the left. Uh, Vox raised I, I saw this today. I couldn't believe it. Three hundred million dollars. And they're saying that they're having they're having trouble paying their bills right now. And so they want they want people leftists to kick in and just give them money. They've got they're going out there hat in hand now. They raised three hundred million dollars. This is why I get so upset on the right. You know, we have we have conservatives who are titans of industry and business. And, you know, they they just they don't want to fund. They don't want to fund something that will really help with our ideas they, they maybe they don't want to take the heat but we don't do this they, they play the left plays the media game in terms of owning institutions and building platforms 
so much better than we do. Look at us. We, we completely missed out on Amazon, on Netflix, on on these institutions that now they've replaced Hollywood studios. Their influence on the public mind, their influence on our conversation as a country is stronger than any Hollywood. It's not even close, stronger than any Hollywood studio. And they have a much bigger bankroll, too. I was watching The Crown last night, actually. I'll tell you more about that one later. And one thing that's just stunning about that, uh, about that series, that show on Netflix, which I highly recommend, even if you think you're not going to like it, it's, I didn't think I was going to like it. It's actually good for what it did. They do a very good job, and it's historically pretty accurate. But the amount of money they've spent on that production is just stunning. And it's a reminder of what Netflix, what Amazon, what these digital giants can do now when it comes to funding. And they and YouTube and, you know, they are the ones that have real control over what your kids see, what your kids think now in the media world. So remember that Uh, places like The Washington Post, you know, they're now legacy institutions propped up by the digital the digital titans in that space. Uh, obviously, Jeff Bezos of, of Amazon uh, owns the Washington Post now, which is probably the reason the Washington Post is able to keep going as it does. They, they uh, employ one of the more hilariously dishonest and just completely insane, quote, conservative writers. Uh, she's not a conservative at all. And it's it's I realize now that her entire shtick is really just to gaslight everyone and to agitate people who are conservatives by her saying that, you know, she's doing this. It's a little bit like in the show The Office when uh, when Jim Halpert is dressed entirely as as Dwight Schrute. And the whole gag is that, you know, he's now pretending to be Dwight and it drives Dwight, the character, insane. Jennifer Rubin goes around pretending to be a conservative to try to drive us all nuts. She tweeted this out last night. And I, I do think this is something that we should uh, remember um, and I, I will continue to say this. It could be because it influences the way they'll talk about this national crisis right now on the economic side, on the health side. This must be weaponized against Trump. They will not. They do not put that aside for a moment. They intend to hold him fully, not just accountable, but to use this to bludgeon the Trump campaign uh, into submission in be, on behalf of Joe Biden, who is locked in a in a basement somewhere. You know, trying to remember where he left his pajama pants, you know, like that's that's what's going on right now. And Jennifer Rubin tweeted out last night, and this is the quote, if Biden is serious about winning, he needs to accuse Trump of willingness to kill people. Now, this is one of those she said out loud. Well, we know a lot of them are thinking moments, but they are thinking that and that is going to be a major part of the debate in the weeks ahead. They're just going to say that Trump doesn't care about people dying. They said this about Bush, too. I mean, Bush wasn't a perfect president by any stretch, and I had my I have my bones to pick with George H.W. Bush, but he was a good man, and he was doing his best, and he was honorable, and he was ethical. And they, they acted like Bush didn't care about our dead soldiers. Bush didn't care about dead civilians. Bush was a warmonger. Bush was horrible. Uh, get ready for that with, with Trump. It's going to be... Uh, Before it was Bush lied, babies died with the Iraq war with this COVID-19. It's going to be I don't know what the rhyme is yet. So apologies, but it'll be something like, you know, Trump lied. Grandma died. I mean, that's what they're going to that's what they're going to say. That's going to be the the tagline that they use here. That's going to be the phrase that you hear endlessly, um, because otherwise they have to actually defend the actions, not just of Joe Biden, but of the Democratic Party, which is what I know I initially was talking to you about. How can they justify blocking this aid? There are thousands and thousands of people waiting in lines for food because small businesses have laid them off because 
there's so much less commerce going on. And, and one thing that this is is really showing all of us is how our the, the class of elites in this country is overwhelmingly drawn from people uh, who don't understand the basics of how a business or, or the economy works. I mean, a, a lot of the political class I'm talking about in particular, the political class is a lot of, you know, B plus students from second tier schools who got a law degree and couldn't couldn't get into, you know, Cravath or whatever law firm they wanted. Uh, so they decided to run for state state Senate or state, you know, state rep. And now all of a sudden they're a U.S. senator. I mean, that's look at Joe Biden. Look at Joe Biden. That that's who is running. the. These people don't understand. They don't understand how a business functions. They don't understand how a business works. They have no idea. You think AOC knows how a business works? She thinks that she thinks that that a, now look, she did a real job and I give her credit for this. And I don't I don't agree with conservatives who are always mocking her as as a bartender, as if that's something to be mocked. That's bartenders an honorable job. It's actually a tough job from friends. I have lots of friends who have done that job. So I don't like that. You know, people do this, though. They don't like somebody. It's the same. It's the same kind of mentality when I'm saying, hey, you know, maybe we should try a more targeted, uh, you know, a more targeted infusion of, of capital to small business owners to deal with so that they can put rent money in the economy too. And the response I'll see on Twitter from a lot of, a lot of libs is like, you know, you're so, you're so ugly, go shoot yourself. And it's like, well, what does that have to, what does that have to do with anything? But people are crazy, right? People are nuts. So uh, I don't like it when they, when they mock AOC for being a bartender, because there's nothing to mock there. There's nothing funny about that or wrong about that. It's a good job, just like any other job. Uh, but I do think that if you had to, and she's an econ major, as she likes to point out, an econ major who won a big science prize in high school that she still talks about now. That's right. I am a science and econ whiz. Uh, I think that she figures she shows up and there's alcohol there and she pours it for people and they give her money and, and that's it. And now that's true, but I don't think that she has an understanding of that employer has to pay numerous salaries. That employer has to pay insurance on the building, rent on the building, has to deal with surveyors. I mean, not surveyors, uh, purveyors, <laughs> surveyors. Whoa, I want to see what the landscape is. No, they have to de deal with um, people that are their suppliers and they have to run that on credit usually and they buy it on credit and then they sell. And, you know, I don't think she has even the faintest understanding of that. And I'm not trying to pick on her. I think she has a French. I think she has a French bulldog, by the way, which at least she has good taste in dogs. So there's that. Um, all, all, all of the folks these days, all, all the cool people have French bulldogs, right? That's a, another thing that I've learned now. Dana Lash, French bulldogs. One of the producers of the show on the first French bulldog. I'm trying to think. A lot of cool people have French bulldogs. Um, but I mean, the, the AOC mentality about not understanding why businesses need the cash that they need soon and what they need it for, that's widespread all throughout the government. I mean, Nancy, Nancy Pelosi doesn't know. Nancy Pelosi's uh, been in public office for decades and decades and has got a super rich husband. She, she doesn't have no idea. doesn't know how to read a balance sheet. She doesn't understand profit and loss statements. So this is, uh, this is the, the recognition that we have that the people that are making the determinations about how we're supposed to go forward here economically uh, don't really understand it. I mean, on the, on the elected political side, and the Democrats slowing this thing down are, are being uh, absolutely disgraceful, but they don't care. They just don't care. They're going to do whatever they can to make sure. Oh, here, I was I'm mentioning Pelosi before. 
Here she is. Here's what she says. Now, remember, this is very straightforward. There's a program to get money to small businesses so they can continue to pay employees, which is very important. Um, The loan amount wasn't enough. So the Republicans came out and said, look, we've already we've seen so much cash go out. We need more cash for this program. That's all. That's all this is. You know, this is like, hey, America gave you know, the the Congress gave America twenty dollars for pizza. Uh, and it turns out the pizza costs 25 bucks. So, so Congress turns around and says, or the Republicans turn around and say, hey, can we get the extra five bucks for the pizza? And Nancy Pelosi has this to say about it. Play six. Secretary Mnuchin called and asked for a quarter of a trillion dollars in 48 hours with no data, just a quarter of a trillion dollars in 48 hours. This morning, Leader McConnell honored that request I say honor, really dishonored the needs that we have with a stunt on the floor of the Senate requesting that $250 billion, no data as to why we need it and the rest. When there are outstanding needs, we should have been doing, and what we offered to do was to sit down and figure out what the numbers are that are needed most urgently. And so you may have seen this morning that this stunt was performed by the Senate leader, knowing that it would fail. Yeah, it's a stunt to get cash in an emergency to people who really need it, Nancy. Isn't isn't she amazing? Completely shameless. I mean, when it comes to shame, she is like the Terminator. She does not feel she does not have remorse. She does not care. She just keeps coming and coming and coming with the same crap all the time yeah that's right nancy needed to see more data so she makes sure that the money it's a loan program for small businesses they've already signed off on all they're doing is adding the amount of money that they can loan out she wants to slow it down because what republicans are lying they're trying to give they're just giving money out to small businesses that need it that fall under criteria the democrats have already signed off on all this really is is we need more money for the program you've already said is okay Like I said, it's okay. We're allowed to order pizza. We have 20 bucks, but we need 25. Can you give us the last five bucks? Nope. I want to see the data on that pizza. That's Nancy's. That's Nancy's argument here. She's the worst, folks. I mean, she really is. I know it it doesn't need to be said in the sense that we're already aware of it, but it needs to be said because it should be (laughs) because it, it, it she deserves it. She's just not a good, honorable or ethical person. And this isn't even about politics. This is just about who who this person is in this position of power at this time uh, and continuously. You know, I've never heard anybody who admires her character, who's someone with character that I think even exists. That that I will say I've never heard it. Uh, Maybe it maybe someone out there, but not in my not in my lifetime, not in my experience. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. For some reason, we have an enormous problem with enacting the the Defense Production Act for saving lives and guaranteeing health care. Now, that I think has there's that points to a much deeper problem with the systemic priorities that we currently have in the United States. But it's never too late to change it. We must organize to change those priorities from our budget to our production. We have to start demanding and organizing from the bottom up, from grassroots movements, from nurses to warehouse workers to grocery store employees to the halls of Congress, demanding 
that we strip profit motive out of our decisions and reprioritize the public good and the health of everyday people. Whenever AOC talks, it sounds to me as though it's like a computer program that pulls together all of the social justice jargon that you would hear in the faculty lounge of a small liberal arts college in the Northeast. And you just stuck a bunch of words together from it, you know, deprioritize. There, there, are, all, there are all these phrases that you'll hear, you know, deprioritizing the profit motive. And, you know, uh, they, they love words like systemic carceral. You'll hear, hear that one a lot. We're talking about uh, prison policies. Carceral now has become a term that the social justice left uses. I mean, I should really just do it'd be fun to do a whole segment on on the words that identify one as a leftist that you will you will always hear them constantly throwing it in and 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 making sure that they're asserting that identity just by just by their choice of 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 word usage. Um, But what she's saying here that we strip the profit motive out of our decisions and reprioritize the public good and the health of everyday people. I want to know what she thinks should happen with the hospitals that are currently furloughing uh, individual hospitals, furloughing hundreds and hundreds of employees because they can't pay them because there's no business going on because the health care is a business. And if you want doctors to spend years of their lives in medical school and overwhelmingly taking out loans to do so, uh, you're going to have to pay them. And that money's going to have to come from somewhere and it's going to have to pay them enough that they're willing to do it or else they'll just do something else. They'll be a lazy ass journalist sitting on their couch blogging for BuzzFeed. Right. So trying to unlearn everything that we have seen from the 20th into the 21st century about how powerful capitalism is as a tool for prosperity, for lifting people out of poverty, more people lifted out of poverty by the profit motive which is at work in a capitalist system in the 20th century than in all human history before it combined. And yet AOC thinks she knows better. Yes, just put people like her in charge to deprioritize profit and make the public good and the health of everyday people the priority, because that's not going to be a problem. That's not going to go badly for you. Remember this when I tell you that the powers that they're taking right now for themselves, that we are told even by conservatives, oh, it's just an emergency. It's just an emergency. Right. That's because we agree on this emergency. Who says we're going to agree the next time around that it actually is an emergency when something comes up? Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Can you imagine a time where Americans carry certificates of immunity? You know, um, that's possible. I mean, it's one of those things that we talk about uh, when we want to make sure that we know who the vulnerable people are and not. Uh, This is something that's being discussed. I think it might actually be have some merit under certain circumstances. We're hearing a lot about the need to come together and to accept that right now in this extreme situation, there are going to be some. Well, there are enormous changes to our lives, but also there'll be some areas that uh, we just have to go go with what the consensus is um, that usually we would have rights. We'd have protections. But no, now now that's all changing. And one part of this, one area of this is uh, with privacy and the talk of surveillance, surveillance, which is the word you're hearing a lot now for cases of this virus now. When you're saying when, when, when surveillance is something like, for example, testing and having real time data returned to uh, to government authorities so they can see up oh, there's been an outbreak in this city 
we need to make sure we get the resources there, put public health personnel on alert, and get the word out because of our instantaneous communications, because of social media, we can uh, very easily let people know if there has been, let's say, a resurgence of COVID-19 in their area. Okay, fine. Good. But when we talk about things like tracking with GPS, whether people are sheltering at home, uh, tracking where active cases are of this and making sure that people are quarantining properly. Again, I can understand, okay, you're supposed to quarantine. They want to make sure you stay in your home. But this, in any other era in my lifetime, there would be a lot of concern over government overreach and what this means for the future. And civil liberties are not something that you just cast aside and say, hey, you know, maybe one day we'll revisit this, but things are really tough right now. There, there's always there's always supposed to be some advocacy, some reminder out there of why we have the checks and balances that we do and why we have uh, even even sometimes at the cost of what we would what, what would be a better outcome. There are things in place in our system that say we, we need to have individual liberty protections that are not to be violated just because of the needs, the, the needs of the state as determined by people either in elected office or federal agencies. And, you know, you can see here, here's just one example of this within the system. Um, you know, the fruit of the poison tree doctrine. And you know, this comes, this has been around for decades now. And it's uh, that if the police search your car illegally, this is the classic example, the police search your car illegally and they found, uh, they find a murder weapon in the trunk. If it's a truly illegal search, not a good faith search, uh, th that will not be admissible in court. Now, we look at this and we say, well, hold on a second. I mean, if this guy's a murderer, don't we want to throw him in prison? Well, we have these we have these protections in place for the individual. and We don't let the government violate them because there's also an important good there. You know, there used to be institutions. I mean, the ACLU, as much as it's always been uh, liberal, there used to be institutions that would make these cases. But now all, all of what had been the civil, the major civil liberty institutions out there are effectively left wing, uh, left wing, you know, lawyer programs that are able to get tax deductible donations and then advocate for, you know, whatever George Soros would basically want them to. Right. That's what's that's what's really happened. But I bring this up because we're seeing all these stories from across the country of government acting in ways that we all know is unacceptable. And sometimes they've been willing to go back and apologize for it. But then we also turn around and say, well, hold hold on a minute. Um, it's unacceptable, but why do they keep doing it? If we're also clear on what reasonable activity for the government should be, even during a pandemic, wh why are they doing things that are absurd? I mean, flatly absurd. Here, here are some examples of this that come to mind. Uh, right now, Michigan has determined that there will be a ban on travel between residences. So and there are some I'm trying to remember what the exceptions are. Uh, oh, here we go. Uh, except for purposes such as caring for a relative, a pet or visiting a nursing home or attending a funeral with no more than 10 people, you are not allowed to go from one residence to another. So, for example, I have my brothers here in New York City. They're sheltering in place, too. I'm allowed to walk outside. I'm, I would not be under the Michigan rules 
Now, whether people will obey these or not is a whole other a whole other question. I would not be allowed to walk to one of my you know, brother's apartments here in New York and spend some time with my brother, understanding that, yeah, you're introducing another human being into your space and there's the possibility that one of us could be asymptomatic. But it's a very, very limited circle and we're being cautious. And but I wouldn't be able to do that. Right. I would I would not be able to do that, even with uh, you know, a brother of mine who is in the lower uh, age risk category for the you know, very low age risk category for the disease, even lower than me. So w- is, we're supposed to think that's OK. Now the government can tell you you can't go see a friend. You have to stay in your home and they're going to fine you for that. Boston has. Uh, oh, wait, is it Boston or is it? No, no, it's a town. Uh, I forget which it, it, there is a town in Massachusetts right now where they are setting up, it's not Boston, I think it's a suburb of Boston, where they're setting up one-way sidewalks. So you know how we all, and I, I hope that everybody understands this, right? When you're, when you're on an escalator, you want to stand, you're on the right. If you want to walk, you're on the left. You're all going in the same direction. We all know this, right? This is kind of, this is intuitive. And I think because of the way that we drive in this country, you know, you're going one way, you go to the right, you go the other way, you're going the left, and we, we all line up with each other pretty readily in that that's just the way we think well what's going on now in this town is they're setting up sidewalks so that there's going to be one sidewalk where you go north and one sidewalk where you go south and you got to cross the street if you want it you can't just be they're doing this to to improve social distancing and they're going to fine people a hundred dollars well uh that's an this is another instance where you say how much benefit is this really going to to give anyone? And look, it's a hundred dollar fine. Although people right now are really hurting for money, so a hundred dollar fine could really be painful for for a lot of folks. But they're not throwing people in prison for six months or something. I, I'm not gonna. I'm not trying to overstate this. But you see this all across the country. All these municipalities and all these different state ordinances that, uh, and they're encouraging snitching in, in Los Angeles. And I'm just troubled by this because this is this is not who we are. Americans don't snitch on their neighbors because their neighbor wants to get some fresh air. Americans don't, uh, you know, call out somebody because they're they're going for a walk with, you know, a loved one, you know, their significant other or whatever. And they're not maintaining six feet of perfect space between the two of them. I mean, you know, who knows what they're doing behind closed doors? I don't think they're maintaining six feet of distance, folks. Right. So uh, this is this is not this is not who we are. and, And I just find it. I find it troubling because there's so little there's so little pushback against it in general, particularly in the media. I think everyone's so on board in the media because, like, most media people still have most of them still have their jobs. They're still getting paid. That will change if this continues on, as I've been saying. But they're much less affected by this than some of the others. Um, You know, I I got to say that. uh, There should be more of a sense that we're telling the government you guys know this is only, you know, this is only going to be for a few weeks, right? I mean, we, we should let the, the government needs to be put on notice a little bit about this, that we the people will not comply for anything more than just a very, very brief, uh, a brief duration here with this crisis going on. Um, so, yeah, that's that's I'd like to see more of that. And then you also get into the. Uh, there are some people that I think in, in public life are taking a little bit of a little bit of schadenfreude at the shutdown that's going on of uh, religious and spiritual life. As you know, we're heading into this weekend is is uh, is is going to be Easter and it's a 
it's the holiest day of the year for Christians. And it's also, unfortunately, it seems like this year going to be the day when there may, it may be the day of the greatest amount of death in the United States from COVID-19. That's possible. That's what that's what the models are predicting as, as of right now. And there does seem to be a, a tone among some of the elites that, sorry, you know, you you silly Bible thumpers, but you better stay at home or else. Uh, here's John Meacham, who I will not. He's such an annoying, smug lib. I will not read any more of his books. I've read a couple of them in the past. Uh, but here's what he says. Play seven. So how are you going to be celebrating Easter with the social distancing going on right now? Are you, are you changing at all? Yeah, well, obviously, because we'd be at church. Uh, Some people are going to church, though. Some um, people are defying it and saying that, no, the church service itself is part of their religious expression and part of their Christian tradition, and they're not going to stop going. What, what yeah. do you think of that? Being willfully stupid is not part of the Christian tradition. I just, just don't. Uh, don't do it. Uh, the early Christians met in houses. They met quietly. Uh, this has, We actually have a chance here to have the most authentic Easter you can imagine. Uh, it began when the disciples were in hiding. The disciples were socially distanced because they were afraid they were going to get arrested. Uh, we're we are going to be, you know, in our households uh, all because we're trying to be safe. Don't be stupid, he says to people who are even considering trying to come together to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ with their fellow Christians. Uh, look, the the liberal mentality is on display for all of us to see on a regular basis these days. They they just do not the the elites, the people that go on, you know, on MSNBC and CNN and ABC News and the the Hollywood uh, Hollywood stars that are doing TikTok videos and all this stuff. They don't care about the they don't care about the food, uh, the food lines. I mean, I don't mean the lines to get into grocery stores. I mean, people that are in line with their families trying to get food from a pantry. They need food. They, they, they don't have the money and they don't have the ability to get enough food. They don't care about those people. And they're able to they're able to dismiss, especially in more rural areas, they're able to dismiss all those people by saying, well, sorry, we're too busy saving lives. That's the that's the attitude now. I'm too busy. I'm too busy saving a life by being in my my uh, Hamptons mansion here. And, you know, looking out over the ocean and making sure that I'm getting all of my deliveries from Whole Foods left for me on the doorstep. Right. I mean, you know, it's really easy for them. It's a lot harder for other people across the country that are really worried about this uh, economically. And the uh, disparaging of people that still want to try to maintain some spiritual life through this. I think it's just because for a lot of elites, the the notion that anybody would rely on a relationship with God in a moment like this, you don't relate. You don't rely on God. You rely on Dr. Fauci. That's their attitude. That's what they think. That's their move. Whew. Well, we'll see how that shakes out for them in the long run. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Thanks to President Trump, we have gotten everything we need, including but not limited to PPE and ventilators. Um, we, we, of all our ventilators in the state, only about 20% right now are in use. Our numbers are headed in the right direction. Um, we still have to be vigilant, but uh, while we save lives, we've also got to get started saving livelihood. We got to get this economy back open. 
We do have to get the economy back open. We have to make sure that we're taking care of everybody that we can uh, economically, health-wise, of course, first and foremost. Got to keep everyone alive that you can. Do everything you can to save every life that comes into our healthcare system, everyone that's uh, in duress. But we need to help the people that are out of work and do what we can for them. And that includes college students. Very interesting to see how, you know, the two areas of American life where we've had the biggest expansion of, uh, of expense and adjusted for inflation, by far, healthcare and college tuition. It's just they're out of control. Food, a lot of other things are actually more expensive now than they used to be as well. A uh, bigger part of our paychecks than they used to be. But uh, college and health care have just exploded in the last 20, 30 years. And college students are taking out these, these massive loans to go to these really just these, you know, big spoiled brat pampered factories of excess. I mean, it's ridiculous what's going on in a lot of these places. You know, my, my school that I went to was very expensive, too. I don't know. I don't, I don't look. It was just a, it was a credential. It was necessary to get certain kinds of jobs coming in. Yeah, did it help me get into the CIA? Sure. Uh, but that's it's a credentialing program. And beyond that, you, know, you have to worry. You have to ask sometimes, well, what am I really paying for here? Uh, and I actually did homework and, and studied. I actually tried in college. A lot of people don't. Uh, a lot of people do. I'm not saying that, but there are a lot of uh, a lot of friends who and I mean at the fancy schools, too. You, know, you can go to Harvard and do nothing. You really can. But now with the coronavirus situation and people being told they have to leave campus, which for universities was this was absurd. The, see, a university is a perfect example of exactly what I think they should have not done. They should have kept people on campus. They should have kept the students on campus. And if you were a faculty member or you're somebody who is at higher risk, shelter in place, which for a lot of these faculty members is like what they do anyway. They're tenured. They teach one class a week. So they stay in their off campus cottage for six months while we figure out, you know, what to do, what, what, what's going on here. And, you know, there's there were ways to do this that did not involve sending everybody back home, especially because I'm sure there were a lot of infections on campus we didn't even know about. And they went back home and might have infected grandma and grandpa or mom and dad who might have been in a, in a high risk health category. But the schools didn't refund, at least in some cases, haven't refunded tuition. They fired the lowest paid workers on campus. These are schools with bill. I'm talking about the fancy schools now. These are schools with, you know, enormous endowments. People are paying fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year to go there. It's absurd. Well, at least the college students look like they're going to get a little, bit of, a little bit of help here. President Trump was talking about this one. And uh, producer Mark, wait, I just, I, just, uh, I just lost. Where did it go? Oh, yes. Nine. Clip nine. The Department of Education is also announcing the availability of more than $6 billion in emergency grant funding to assist college students impacted by the cancellation of classes and the suspension of housing. Uh, a lot of people had a lot of things suspended. Housing is one of them. Previously, we waived student loan payments for six months. So student loan payments have been waived for six months. So we'll discuss it after that. May go further. So they're trying to do things to help the college students. Uh, you know, this I, I wanted to circle back for a second. The, the certificate of immunity thing that Fauci's been talking about, uh, we, we, we are we're entering something that's going to feel more and more like some sci fi dystopian American future uh, in terms of the kinds of concessions that people seem to be willing to make. Now, I do think that the serology testing and all that's going to be a good thing. But the government declaring who can and cannot go to work based on a based on a blood test. I understand the circumstances around this right now, but I also think that, wow, how, how quickly we just decide that our, our liberties and our, 
It's all it's, uh, and everyone's just scared. They're just going to do whatever the government says, I guess. That's that's where people seem to be now. Thanks for listening to the Bus Sex and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcast, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's going to be an election this fall. We know who the candidates are as of now, Donald Trump and Joe, deep down in the basement somewhere, hopefully not sniffing anyone's hair, Biden. Those are the options. That's what we've got here. Well, there's a new Trump ad that goes after, you know, there's, let, let, me, let me take a step back for a moment. You'll notice there's a lot of focus put on this research about where the virus, and this is, this is now a very political question. This is becoming very political very quickly about how most of the infections in New York and in the, uh, particularly in the East Coast of the United States transited Europe and West Coast infections tend to come from China. But obviously the East Coast has been, New York has been hit much worse than anywhere else. And there's a reason, now you would think, well, anybody who isn't a, isn't a complete imbecile would understand, all right, so the, the disease moved from China to Italy and Spain and some other countries, but China to Europe to the United States. What, why is that such a, a big point of difference? And why is there such a focus on this right now? There will be some idiots who say, see, it's not. I mean, there was already a few, a former MSNBC host, I'm not even going to name him, but he's like, see, why is everyone blaming China? It's, some people are too dumb. It doesn't even matter. It's not worth talking about. But there's a, there is a reason why they're focusing in on this, and it's because they're going to have to start making claims. They're already doing it, but they're going to have to start creating those uh, those narratives about where Trump specifically failed and a big area of success so far. When you look at the way the public views Trump's response to all this, a big part of his success, or I should say a big part of the perception that he's done a reasonable uh, or good job with this was the shutdown of flights from China, which he did in opposition to a lot of experts, in opposition to the Democratic Party. A lot of people gave him heat for this. And then once we actually saw what happened here and what what the spread of the virus has been, it's quite clear that that was absolutely the right move. Ah, so what are they going to do? They're going to try to nullify that move by saying, well, he didn't shut down flights from Europe. And that's what really mattered. That's what they're going to say. He didn't. He should have done both. So their claim, and I understand that this is not a good faith criticism because it clearly would not have been possible when they're while they were telling him, while the libs were telling Trump, don't be xenophobic, don't shut down flights from China. And he was right to do that. They're then going to move or they're moving right now to, well, because he didn't also shut down flights from Europe, it doesn't really matter that he didn't shut down those China flights. And he overstated it and lied and lied and lied and lied. And, you know, and then they're going to get into their whole usual attack. But this the Europe transmission route to the United States is going to be the way that they try to wipe away the good action that he took by uh, by stopping flights coming in from China. So be prepared for that. Now, the Trump campaign, I think, obviously understands what's going to happen here and what this is all going to look like, which is why they've got this new ad, which some of you will be able if you're watching on Pluto TV, I think you can see it. You'll be able to hear it, though. You'll get the idea. But China is going to be a vulnerability for Joe Biden in ways that a lot of Democrats have have not yet come to appreciate. Play 19. I'm ready to go. This is a crisis. This is no time for Donald Trump's record of hysterical xenophobia. Biden's son inked a billion dollar deal with a subsidiary of the Bank of China. 
China is going to eat our lunch. Come on, man. They're not bad folks, folks. Since the outbreak, the Communist Party has been mobilizing overseas organizations to buy local supplies and send them to China. It is in our self-interest that China continue to prosper. What a beautiful history we wrote together. Banning all travel will not stop it. The president is right. The travel restriction on China, as every public health official we've talked to said, bought the country time. That was a very smart move right there. Xenophobia. Xenophobia. I complimented him on, uh, on dealing with China. I'm not going nuts. <laughs> like the thing at the end, I'm not going nuts. It's a pretty good ad, actually. A pretty good ad. Um, I've I've been saying it all along. I don't think Biden's up for this, and we're going to test out my theory. I didn't think Biden would be the nominee. I was wrong about that. Uh, and I, there's still a part of me that that thinks that there's someone waiting in the wings, somebody who recognizes that there could be an opportunity here that Joe, perhaps for health reasons, for maybe even mental health reasons, isn't going to be able to finish this thing. And maybe Hillary Clinton is finally going to be able to take her rightful place on the throne as president of the United States. I, I think that Hillary believes that there's still a chance. I think she always believes that there's still a chance. Uh, maybe, maybe that's crazy. Maybe that's crazy. But there's a, there's a part of me that's saying, there's a part of me that's not going to give that one up anytime soon. Hillary is, is relentless in the pursuit of power. Uh, but Biden is, here's the problem. They're going to have to convince people that Biden is going to be better at this than Trump. Now, maybe some people, you know, one of the issues of one of the political vulnerabilities that Trump had had in the past, and he probably still does. If you look at the numbers now, I'm not sure. Suburban female college educated voters, they don't like the nasty tone and they don't like Trump being a little too aggressive. And that that seemed like and in the midterms, that was one of that and healthcare were two big data points in favor of the Democrats doing very well and taking back the House in the midterm election. And, uh, you know, this is now where we say, OK, is that going to be enough for Biden to have a better final finish against Trump than Hillary Clinton did in 2016? I'm, I'm not sure. I, I no one's sure. Right? That's kind of a silly thing to say. No one really knows. But I like this one. Mayor Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Remember him? Remember him? Remember he was lecturing you on what the Bible really says? Pope Pete doing his thing. He wants you to know there's a big difference between Trump and Biden. Let's hear what it is. Play 10. What a force he and his supporters are and, and how important of a voice they've been. Uh, and I saw that uh, last night he, he committed that he was going to do everything in his power to make sure that we defeat Donald Trump this fall. Uh, I expect that he's going to keep his world and, uh, with his word. And, and I think so much now depends on us coming together and realizing just how stark the difference is going to be in November between President Trump and the alternative. What is the what is the huge difference exactly between uh, Biden and Trump that is in Biden's favor They're Right now, they're suppressing the story about a on the record, credible sexual assault allegation from the 90s against Biden. They're just going to pretend like it's not there, which I, I look, the media has no credibility to any person who's honest and, and pays attention. So maybe they that doesn't bother them that they're just the principles that they claim to have been adhering to all this time for me too no longer exists. But uh, Biden is going to do what exactly that? And remember, he's not going to be in a position to go out there and be on the stump. And who do you think is going to be more compelling 
on video? Who do you think is going to be better able to use Twitter and social media and all these? Now, Biden has the whole army of, you know, Hollywood and all these lib creatives, uh, lib creatives and all these other people that are going to be trying to make him seem cool. And, you know, he's going to be on the Jimmy Fallon show and he's going to be on the uh, the, the other not funny late night shows that are out there. I really wish I, I wish that we had a better the state of comedy in this country was better than it is right now, because in particular, man, we could all use some really good, funny stuff. Um, wouldn't it be nice if you could turn on the late shows and it wasn't an anti-Trump lecture every night? If it was actually someone who's just trying to be funny and make everyone feel a little better and, and escape the problems we're all facing as a nation, wouldn't that be nice? No, they don't do that. They don't do that. They they have to, to dance to the tune that the lib, uh, the lib bosses and media have for them. And I think they're also all themselves uh, big libs i mean jay leno wasn't a huge lib and i wasn't i was never a big fan of late night tv i always thought that uh uh I, what's the producer mark i'm blanking on his name uh the you know the other not jay leno the other guy david letterman thank you yeah i never thought david letterman was funny ever i did not understand it i thought this was a total emperor has no clothes situation never once made me laugh never once was i like yeah that guy's really funny he did a lot of interviews where he was really smarmy with conservatives of course and and was a and, and people that i know who worked for him said he was a a world-class blankety blanking blank like not a nice guy at all but, you know, he somehow had this job and he was just, oh, yeah, David Lim, it was all a construct. It was all crap. Um, I would just prefer that our comedians be funny. And I know there are funny comedians out there. I saw a great bit by a guy, Sam Morell, uh, who has a YouTube special out now. And I saw just a, a clip of it and it was it was hilarious. Now, it's not for kids. It's a little bit stuff's a little racy. But uh, Sam Morell's really funny. I might check out on, on Netflix. Bruce and Mark, have you watched any? There have been a few new specials, a few new comedy specials on Netflix. Have you seen any of it? Uh, I watched the Dave Chappelle one recently. Well, that was within amazing. the last few months. That was amazing, mm-hmm. right? A plus, two thumbs way up. Yeah, absolutely. It was hilarious. Yeah, it was absolutely, absolutely fantastic. And people credit Dave Chappelle with, in a sense, reopening comedy to actual jokes, Because right? up to this point, making fun of Trump all the time, you know, orange man bad, his, his supporters are illiterate and they're terrible and all this stuff. It's not funny. It's pathetic. It's not even clever. And that's what a lot of a lot of comedy, in particular late at night, has turned into. Um, but anyway, back to the media utilization point. Sorry, I, I got a little bit far afield there. Trump is going to be doing. Uh, Trump is going to be doing much better in that in that in that area than Joe Biden. Well, I think we all know that. So really, this is all going to come down to the narrative of the handling of the virus and the state of the economy. And that's what that's all anyone's going to be focusing on when they when they cast their uh, ballots this fall. I, I think I think that's a pretty fair uh, place for us all to be. Um, or you could just take advice on all this from the geniuses, the overpaid geniuses in our media like Joy Behar, Play Clip 12. You know, they're always talking about <laughs> me leaving the show, but I'm not I'm not leaving the show. There. So let me say that rumors of my retirement have been greatly exaggerated. You know, here's the thing. What am I going to do? This pandemic has changed the game. At one point, you think, gee, I could retire and take a cruise around the world. I won't even watch reruns of Love Boat at this point. So where am I going to go? What will I do? You know, I need to be on television. Also, let's not forget that I provide employment for right wing media. I mean, I'm a job creator over at Breitbart. (laughs) Everything I say appears on Breitbart. I need to be on television. She said it. 
I tell you, these people, they have, they have a need. They need to be in front of that camera. It's an addiction. Canco, even after they've made millions of dollars on it for years and years, they never, never want to give it up. It's, it's never time to just go, like, take care of the grandkids and be a, good, be a good person and forget about the spotlight. No, no, they have an addiction. They got a fever, and the only prescription is more TV time. Joy Behar! Ugh. Man, they, they thought that maybe she was gonna she's gonna stop. She's not gonna stop. They're not gonna stop anytime soon. She's got uh, Larry King syndrome. It's never never enough. It's never time to hang it up. You gotta gotta keep at it forever and ever and ever. Nothing else matters except your media perch, which you will do anything to fight for and keep for yourself. So uh, I, anyway, I would love to see if you have any great recommendations for me for YouTube specials uh, for anybody who's really like comedy wise. Uh, that's good. Please don't send me, you know, Eddie, you know, Eddie Murphy from 30 years ago. I've already seen that. All right. Don't don't send me delirious. I, I've seen this like I'm talking about new stuff that's coming out now. Sorry, I have to specify this because like producer Mark, I asked I put out a call for shows on Netflix. I said not any of the really well-known ones, but have you seen anything on Netflix you like? And like half the people are telling me Ozark. I want to be like Ozark's the number one trending show on yeah, Netflix. Fuck, right have you now, seen guys. have you seen Breaking Bad? Yeah, it's like, hey, have you ever seen this show Tiger King, Buck? Like, yeah, guys, I've seen that one, all right? I'm talking about, you know, you need to give me, like, a couple layers down. You know when you start actually, like, searching around in the different columns on Netflix or the different uh, uh, verticals? You know, if you find something good there. Like that one time I was watching Amazon and found the super violent movie about Bigfoot, and then the guy who plays the main bad guy in the movie listens to the show, and we had a new friend for Team Buck. Remember that? Oh, were you? I, no, you weren't on I the show here. yet. Oh, you were here. It was a, yeah, the yeah, horror yeah. movie guy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah that was yeah. like right when I first started. Yeah, we had drinks in L.A. We hung out. Oh, very yeah. nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look no, at you, cool. a celebrity. Yeah, he's cool. So, uh, but yeah, no, that, that movie, woof, that movie was that movie's rough. <laughs> I mean, it's, a, it's like good for a horror movie, but I'm saying, ooh, there's some violent stuff in there. I was like, good Lord. And I know you're, not, you're like me. You're not into the... I, I had to fast forward some parts of Ozark, Ozark this season because it made me too sad. Because I'm really? a big softy. Oh yeah, you're yeah, a made me too sad. Bougie softy. I'm a bougie softy. Yeah. yeah, it's true. All right, roll call. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Roll call time. Let us do this thing that is the role of the call. Uh, we'll get right to it. Also, remember, folks, uh, we're going to be doing the Malta podcast soon. I'm putting in some final notes and research for this weekend, hoping to tape it this weekend. Might be out late next week. Depends on how much extra homework we want to give producer Mark. And uh, we have a YouTube channel up, so please do subscribe to it. And uh, that's a way that you can see the video that we're doing from the Freedom Hut every day here in NYC. And uh, we just would love for you to, to click uh, on the subscribe button. Tell us what you think. I think we have we opened comments there yet. Can people comment? They're all just going to make fun yeah, of, of how, how, how stupid my hair looks these days. But that's all right. Um, we'll take it. I we prefer those. Hair, comments. I think my hair looks great. I think my hair looks great. I'm just saying it's a little bit long. It's a little bit long. You know, it's a little bit. The, the swoop is getting a little out of control. Have Tallulah cut it for you. I, I she, she if I covered my hair in like, uh, you know, some some cheeseburger grease or something, she'd probably just yeah, pull just it all cover out. Cover yourself in peanut butter. And see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. It's very helpful. No problem. All right, Ryan. Hey, Buck, just want to say I love your show. Been listening out here in Denver whenever I can since the new Freedom 93.7 FM in Denver. Hey, we love Denver Team Buck. You guys are amazing. You have made us a uh, really 
well, uh, really successful show out there in the Denver metro area. And I, I cannot thank you guys enough. It's a new station and we have a we have a big, a big uh, team buck group out there. And so please keep tuning in, spread the word. It's it's been great. I mean, we're seeing the numbers for that for that station in particular. And everyone goes, whoa, wow. Buck, you're really resonating out in Denver. I might have to move to Denver if this keeps up, man. Denver sounds awesome. It's got great weather. You know, producer Mark. Okay, he wants Florida. So we're going to Denver. Denver, we're going to have to work on producer Mark because he wants Florida. But Denver would be nice. Just slash all your state income tax and uh, maybe cut the altitude a little bit. Yeah, yeah, that's not fun. I would have to learn to ski if we moved to Denver. That's the thing. And probably mountain bike, too. But I could do those things. You really want to move to a place that has worse weather than New York? Nothing. No, Denver. Denver. Denver has better has better weather, uh, weather than New York. Really? I thought it was always cold. No, no. It's like it's. Uh, see, I've done my research, man. It's actually no, you have. it's actually very temperate. Yeah, it's very. I think you're thinking right. of like a. It's not like a Coors commercial. It's not like the Rocky Mountains all the time. Yeah, it's that's not what quite I'm thinking. Like I'm thinking. Yeah, you know, yeah, Skiing no. and snow. Oh, and all no, that. producer no. Mark, we're not going to make you like wear a little. Uh, you know, wear one of those parkas year round yeah, with I, the little. I'm not into that. Yeah, and not, you don't like hats, so you can't move too cold. It's not that I don't like hats. Hats don't like me. They don't fit on my giant head. We'll have to get you some earmuffs. Do they make them in that size? Is I mean, there such a thing as manly earmuffs? Is uh, that a thing? It depends you, on how cold it is. Can you wear manly earmuffs? I mean, if they're like, if they're, what if it's like, a, you know, a Siberian tiger that you killed with your bare hands? You know, I feel like sure. those earmuffs. Yeah. Uh, short I don't of think that, Peter though, would like that very much. That's probably true. I don't yeah. think... Uh, I don't think earmuffs are usually for the guys, though. You know, anyway. All right. Um, Oh, sorry. Ryan had an idea for us that I completely forgot to get to. Here's an idea. I'm sure would not be popular among many, but what's stopping the U.S. from just telling China to pound sand in terms of repaying the U.S. one trillion dollars in debt that's outstanding or revoking all the Treasury securities the CCP holds? I know there could be implications in terms of the value of the dollar, but we know this is their fault. I genuinely feel for you being in NYC right now. You're the man. Keep fighting the good fight. Well, thank you, Ryan. Thank you for everybody listening at the Denver's Freedom, 93.7 FM. And, uh, yeah, you know, the problem with trying to do that is that it would have a huge, huge uh, follow-on effects and ramifications for the treasuries that are held by other countries all over the world. So uh, the, our, our treasury, uh, treasury notes that are hold, held by other countries. Japan actually holds, I think Japan holds more of our treasuries than China. Uh, I could be wrong about that, but I think it's Japan's number one, China's number two. And uh, there would be... Remember, a treasury is it's effectively they're buying, you know, they're, they're buying a, an IOU from us and we pay them interest on that. Uh, if, if you default on those people in other countries won't buy them. So that's this is why when you have a default and you have and the, you know, a currency devaluation of default, this is very bad for countries, economies that do this. This is a desperation move. It's not a thing that works out well. Uh, this is also why when people say that China might just dump all of our treasuries to hurt us, well, that would that would be like them lighting a few trillion dollars of of capital that's theirs on fire to hurt us. Yes, it would be bad for us, too, but it would be bad for them. There's no way for them to just uh, weaponize that against us. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, roll call continuing here, and uh, I've I've been informed that I can tell you all that the the girlfriend, my girlfriend, is a skier, Denver. So if we do move out there, she's gonna she's gonna teach me to ski herself. She's actually quite good. 
So, so there we go. So uh, Denver, Denver, I don't know, man. It could be. Let's get to uh, Angela, who writes, uh, here in Virginia, we can't have our local elections or our RPV convention. Everyone that is currently in office that could have been voted out or replaced by June will get to stay until after the election in November. Um, I, Angela, I don't know about this. I, I don't know what's going on state to state with how they're handling the situation in terms of their elections coming up. Uh, local elections, I mean, that's obviously, there's a lot of local elections going on all over the place. Um, yeah, I, I, this is going to set a lot of things into, into disarray. You have people that are understandably very scared and they don't want to take any risk, especially for a local election stuff. So, yeah, we are in a scenario where there won't be the elections that we thought there would be, at least at the local level in some places. I, I'm not surprised by that. Rick. Buck was listening to your show the other day regarding the continued intrusion of government in our lives and thought about the Sister City episode of Parks and Rec with Fred Armisen. I've been laughing to myself like a crazy person thinking about it since. Thanks for showing there's some sanity in the media still. By the way, just got the wife to start listening on her own download, Producer Mark. Shields high. Well, thank you, Rick. And good job, Producer Mark, by... Everyone gets their own. Everyone gets their own episode of yeah. the Buck Sexton Show. You don't uh, have to share it, guys. Hey, to make me really happy, every device that you own should get their own episode. Right. Well, because you don't yeah. want. What if all of a sudden you don't have Wi-Fi access or cell service? Exactly. And you've only got your iPad. You don't have your phone. You want to make sure you already have the Buck Sexton Show there. I think it's very important. You have entertainment. Yep. Yeah, you gotta make gotta make sure you got it. You can't you can't be without it, guys. You know what I mean? It's like the old American Express card. Don't leave home without it. Don't leave home about a downloaded version of the Buck Sexton show on any of your devices. Very important. We all know this. And the Fred Armisen thing, the sister city is in Venezuela. And there's this whole thing where he's like, you know, if you overcook fish, jail, undercook chicken, jail, don't go to the dentist appointment, jail. He goes through all these things where you get jail for everything. That would be a clip that we should uh, we should we should be reminded of right now, given what's going on, you know. Go to the playground with two family members, jail. Walk the wrong way on the street, jail. Uh, you know, cough without covering your mouth, electric chair, right? I mean, people really, really are uptight about all this stuff these days. And the government is, the government's doing whatever it wants. And, no, and I, don't, I see very little pushback against it either. The government's doing whatever it wants. Mike, dear Buck, the greatest sports movie of all time is Miracle. The story of the greatest sports event of all time. Shields high. I got to pass this one to producer Mark. Producer Mark, what say you? Um, I can agree with that. Miracle is, I mean, that and Rocky, I think, are the two best. I, I'm going to have to watch. I've never seen Miracle. You've never seen Miracle? No, we you're, talked about You're an this. American? We, yeah, and they beat, we, beat the, uh, we beat the Ruskies, right? The Russians. That's what a Ruski is. Oh, okay. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. It's on Disney Plus. You got to watch it. Might be on Netflix, too. Oh, it's on Disney Plus. I, yeah. might, I might be able to actually watch it then. Is, is it? Is it? I know it's a great story in the sense of what happened. Is it a well-made movie though? Fantastic. Is, is it entertaining? It's not really? just because of the story. It is a very well-done movie. Who stars? Do we know anyone uh, big? Yeah, it is someone big, big uh, that plays Herb Brooks, the head coach. I forget off the top of my head. Oh, okay. All right, but I'll check it out on on your rec. Um, but Mike, yeah, that's a good. That's uh, if producer Mark isn't mocking your your offering here, that means it must be pretty good. So. And he says it may, in fact, be the best all time. Uh, yeah, for me, I'm trying to think what other sports movie. I have some sports movies that I really like that I think anybody else would think is terrible. I saw Probably a tennis tight, movies. 
I t- well, I mean, of course. Well, the, the problem with tennis movies is that if you play tennis, the actors are always so horrible at tennis. Like the, the movie Match Point, which is actually a very good Woody Allen movie. Uh, the guy who's playing is supposed to be almost pro level. And it's like they got somebody who has never swung a tennis racket in his life. And then you see it on video. You're like, this is pathetic. Like, that's not what this looks like at all. Because um, it shouldn't be that hard to fake for a few shots, for a few camera rounds, uh, being able to like hit a tennis ball well. But of course, they're terrible. Um, no, I like the movie called Best of the Best, which is about the American Taekwondo team. Oh, come and, on. And it's absurd. It's absurd. <sighs> It's a, look, I'm just going to tell you, you know, who's in it, actually, Sean Penn's chubby brother. You know, no, what I'm talking so about not even Sean Penn is. Chubby no, 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 no. It's like bootleg Sean Penn. He's like he's like Sean Penn after he's gone on a bender and done nothing but eating peanut M&Ms and guacamole for like six months. That's yeah. you know, I can't sounds really riveting. Yeah, he's in it. Oh, and there's another uh, brother, Julia Roberts, producer Nick, <laughs> Whoops. just came out with uh, with its. Um, what was the guy's name? Chris Penn. It's Chris Penn. I could not remember the guy's name. Yeah, Chris Penn, the chubby brother of of uh, Sean Penn. And then there's also Julia Roberts, way, way less famous. Also actor brother, Eric Roberts. He's in it, too. And. And then some some random guy who's uh, who's Asian, who's the the best Taekwondo guy on our team, on the American team. And they fight the South Korean uh, Taekwondo team and the movies. uh, But you know who the coach is? The coach is fabulous. James Earl Jones. Oh, yeah. This just sounds terrible. It's a bad. I mean, it's a great bad movie. Ugh. It's a great bad movie. It's just a lot of guys doing high kicks and talking about like America. And it's great. By yeah. the way, before we get a thousand emails about this, Kurt Russell stars in Miracle. Ah, fair. Good. good I didn't act- want to get a million uh, a million emails about that. So. Good actor. So that's actually yeah. for me. That's a very big. That's a big plus column thing. I, I'm a Kurt Russell fan, basically just because of Tombstone. I'll expect and Big Trouble report. in Little China. I'll expect a report on Miracle on Monday. Yeah, I'll have to ask the boss uh, or the boss is the two ladies in my life these days. One is one is one is human. One is canine. Uh, if we can watch uh, Miracle over the weekend, I think that'd be a good I think that'd be a good choice. Yeah, yeah. I think Miracle would work. All right. Uh, David. Hey, Buck. It got real for me today. Oh, man. I'm sorry, David. It got real for me today. My 94 year old uncle Earl passed away after testing for COVID-19 on Tuesday. I talked with my dad tonight. I knew my Uncle Earl was a World War II veteran, but I didn't know that he fought at Iwo Jima and received two Purple Hearts during his time fighting in the Pacific. Coronavirus is very cruel. Because of it, my uncle can't have a normal wake and funeral. Only five immediate relatives can attend a graveside service. I hope when the virus is in the rear view someday, my family will hold an event to remember and honor my Uncle Earl, part of the greatest generation. I fear coronavirus is going to wipe out many of the still living World War II vets. One way or another, I need to hear taps being played in honor of my uncle someday. He deserves it. Oh, David, thank you for reaching out. I'm so sorry to hear about your Uncle Earl. And uh, we thank him for his service and his bravery. And that's amazing. Iwo Jima, two Purple Hearts. Wow. Um, And yeah, I've also been reading stories about the restrictions on public gatherings and what that even means for funerals. Um, You know, his, his service is something that no one can ever take away or change. Uh, and and we will all, you know, always honor what he did for us. And if there's ever a time to, to play taps, uh, if you ever get that opportunity in the future, I'm, I'm sure that you will be reminded immediately of what a great Uncle Earl was. 
and what he did for this country. And uh, you got to keep him in your heart, my man, and say a prayer. I'm very sorry about your loss. And I know this is tough on people. This is tough on a lot of folks across the country right now. All right. Uh, Johnny. Hey, Buck. Producer Mark, producer Nick, and, of course, Tulu. Johnny from Gainesville, Florida here. Even though I'm considered essential, being employed by a grocery store chain, I'm going on 28 days of seclusion due to several dangerous pre-existing conditions. I'm also home with my 15-month-old puppy. One of the few bright spots in all this has been running out of entertainment options and finding Pluto TV with you on it. Haven't seen you since the guest on Red Eye Days. Your voice of reason has been extremely refreshing, and I haven't missed a show since. Even in my situation, I realize it's time to get the country back in gear. I think when all this is over in hindsight, March 30th will be a landmark day. The day the experts' faulty models convinced the president to extend the shutdown and change policy of flatten the curve to protect everyone we can. I believe it would have been the correct time to get the rest of the country up and running. While, of course, keeping the restrictions in place where the virus is more of an issue, I'd wager most of the elderly and people such as myself realize this and a shutdown cannot extend much longer. We'll just have to personally lay low and stay diligent until a later date, but not at the expense of the country's future. Keep being the lighthouse in the storm. Stay safe and give to little scratch. Shields high. Well, Johnny, you're a very astute and very brave man. And uh, thank you for writing in and sharing your thoughts on this one. We really do appreciate it. And um, stay safe out there. And it's absolutely the case that we're going to have to we're going to have to open up this country and get it going again. And that's something that I think we, we all need to get ready for what that means. And uh, I don't know how soon it will be. It probably won't be for at least another month or so. So in the meantime, you got to batten down the hatches and take care of yourself. Take care of your loved ones as best you can. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Maureen writes in. Hi, Buckman, my actual name and producer Buck. I'm not scared of this virus, Buck. I'm angry at the lies, though. 89,000 worldwide deaths is not as big a deal as more die yearly of the flu. I'm angry because I hear they're saying everyone who now dies counts as having died of COVID, which is a lie and skews the numbers higher than what's even real so as to render them useless. Cancer death numbers are plummeting because instead of saying the cancer patient who was dying from cancer died with COVID, if they happen to have it, they're now saying they died of COVID. That's insane, but these doctors at Trump's presses are saying anyone with it who dies of other things is being tallied as COVID death numbers. They're admitting they're liars, yet nobody seems to care. Uh, Mark, do we have, don't we have Fauci actually talking about this specifically in the numbers? Uh, how they're yeah, not counting do. it differently? Yeah, play it. You weighed in on a theory that's been floating around that perhaps the number of fatalities related to COVID-19 is being inflated because people are actually dying of other things. Uh, can, what's your read on that theory? You know, Savannah, there is absolutely no evidence that that's the case at all. You know, it, it, I think it falls under the category of something that's very unfortunate, these conspiracy theories that we hear about. Every time we have a crisis of any sort, there's always this popping up of conspiracy theories. I think the deaths that we're seeing are coronavirus deaths, and the other deaths are not being counted as coronavirus deaths. Um, well, there you have the Fauci response, I mean, effectively Fauci saying that that's not true. So there you go. Um, here we go. Maureen writes, uh, the numbers don't add up to all the fear and the lies to that e and the lies add to that even more. It's disgusting. 
I hope producer Mark had a wonderful Seder for Passover Wednesday night, my favorite Jewish holiday, and I'm wishing you a blessed Good Friday and Easter Sunday, even though watching Mass online isn't the same as in person. How was your Seder, producer Mark? Uh, no official Seder, but uh, we did a Zoom call with uh, my wife's grandparents, and they had, uh, you know, the matzah and all the other stuff, the Seder nice. plate. Yeah. Okay, so you got a little bit of a virtual Seder. Virtual Seder, yes. All right, good, good, good. Chuck writes in, news personality Buck and producer Mark, love the show, would be cool to rock a Buck t-shirt, and Buck, as a fellow man with a great head of hair, leave it to the professionals, shields high. Chuck and Buck with the hair. Yeah, we'll have to, uh, we'll have to see what ends up happening. I mean, I could just go the producer Mark style and just, just, sh- just buzz it all down with like, uh, you know, the clippers and see what that looks like. But some of you might be terrified. If you saw how large my cranium actually is, I don't, I don't know. You're going to have to wear a hat on the show. Yeah, exactly. Or I I have to wear our sponsors. I have to wear an actual wig instead of people accusing me of wearing a wig when I go on TV, which is always very annoying because this is definitely not a wig. People used to say that Trump had a wig and uh, totally false. Trump's hair is very real. He just does a he does a super swoop. I mean, he does an old school comb over. You know, I'm I'm a semi swoop compared to Trump. Trump is full swoop. I now have a great idea for a viral video when we get back in the studio. I'm just going to yank on your hair. Oh, yeah, yeah. You can yank yeah. on the hair and prove that it's real. Yeah. That's cool. We'll, we'll wait for what, be about six months from now. Good yeah, tell. something like good, that. Good times. Jamie writes in, Space Lord Super Ninja. Nice. Just finished Wednesday's show. Starting to hear the fun buck come back. It's great to hear. I appreciate all you do. God bless you and your family. Shields high. Well, Jamie, thank you, man. We're trying. You know, it's uh, been a tough time here, and I never want to be a little too... Uh, a little too lackadaisical or kind of loose with the show when we got really tough stuff going on. But we're also trying to have fun to bring you the information you need, make sure you're able to sit back, relax. You know, it's like putting on Cat Stevens, sit back and let the cat purr. No one listens to Cat Stevens anymore. Whatever happened? Isn't that a comedian? No, Cat Stevens not a comedian. That's oh, is that Cat Williams? I think so, yeah. yeah. Now, Cat Stevens, do you know Cat Stevens? No. Cat Stevens. Um, but I think he became Yusuf Islam. He converted to Islam, and I don't think he does the singing anymore, or at least not the way he used to. Brian, Buck, I do security at a hospital out here in North Idaho and listen to the show on the way to work. Though, blessedly, we haven't been hit like New York or even our neighbor to the West in Washington. The show helps keep me informed and gives me some needed laughs before my watch. So you and the producer uh, are much appreciated. Stay safe and healthy back there and keep doing what you do. We appreciate it. Shields high. Um, and masks. Brian, thank you so much. We're very uh, pleased that we're able to keep you company on your way into work, and that's what we try to do here every day. Team Buck Idaho, Team Buck Denver. We got a lot of folks out west, which is fantastic. Uh, we really like that. Rick, Buck, love your show. Listen to you every night in Naples, Florida. Just want to give you a big thanks on the book Conquistador by Buddy Levy. It was a great read that I've been recommending to my friends. Any more suggestions like this would be greatly appreciated um rick uh i'm so glad you enjoyed that one uh conquistador is is awesome for what it is and if you're looking for another another history book hmm there's a try six frigates by ian toll it's great it's the it's basically the first it's the first six real warships naval warships that the u.s built itself and commissioned and it's the story of them. It's where they were put into action. And it's from this basically takes you from the 1790s up until the early 1800s. 
and it's just really well written. A lot of fa uh, fascinating history. A lot of your favorite characters in American history from that period. You know, talking about Adams and Jefferson and uh, Six Frigates. Ian Toll, really good book that I think you'll like uh, if you're looking for a history book off the top of my head. Uh, another one would be Massey's Peter the Great, um, which is about the Russian Peter the Great guy. That's going to be the show, everybody. Hey, take care of yourselves this weekend. Make sure you're good. We'll see you Monday. Shields high.